You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Michele had a chance to interview Matt Wiley before he opened his new bar Scout on a recent trip to Sydney, and along with Adrian, Rizelle, and myself, Alex, we make up the Unjiggered team. Matt had a very interesting approach on how drinks should be made and how bars should be run, so sit back and enjoy our interview with Matt Wiley of Scout. Enjoy. Yeah, my name is Matt Wiley from uh, Scout in London and soon to be Sydney. Great. So we are here in Sydney. Matt, tell me, what is it that uh, made you think to move to Sydney? I think the weather and the beach more than anything. <laughs> more than anything. Good start. Um, I've been in London for sort of 12 years and it's kind of a grinding city. And as I'm nearly 40 years old now, so for me, a different kind of life was needed and different balance of perspective of what life could give me and uh, the beach was calling. So your body's about to open in a couple of weeks. But you have uh, had the chance to work on a multitude of different uh, bars throughout your career. Yeah. What is it that uh, you love about the Scout concept and why is it that specific concept that you wanted to bring over here? I think it's a concept that's identifiable, um, but also I think Scout works better in Australia than it does in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I'm honest, in, in the UK it's, it's a challenge because of the weather's not very good. And there's limited produce and the UK buys so much produce from outside of the UK. Whereas Australia, the, the climate's so diverse that you can actually get everything here. It's like a, it's like a continent in one, one country. So to be able to use mundane things like bananas that everyone takes for granted that are grown in, in Australia, that there's citrus, there's all kinds of fruit, like tropical fruit, as well as obscure native Australian ingredients. So the, the, the landscape's so big. So Australia is a natural, natural thing to bring scout to Australia. Mm-hmm. A bit of a chit chat about Scout itself as a concept. It's such a uh, radical approach in a way to how the industry has developed in the past uh, 10 years or so. Yeah. If we look at it, bars that were in, like say six, seven, eight years ago, the Nigers and all that, yep. like trying to get uh, ingredients that are as exotic as possible. Yeah. And now I think that the industry moved in the opposite direction and, and Scout probably is one of the leaders. And could you tell us uh, how did you get to this? concept like what is it that made you think okay this is what i want to do for, for me see, seeing sort of the devastation of what the mankind's doing to the soul destroying like we're, we're killing animals left right and center because we have a need because we want everything all the time um and also food's going to run out the, the, the world's overpopulated and at some point we're not going to be able to just go and buy a pineapple off the shelf in in the uk because there's not en- not enough to ship to the uk so w- what are we going to eat how are we going to survive as, as humans? So you've got to live off what's available to you. It's, it's going back to the way that humans used to used to go and forage. The hunter-gatherers would go and look for their food and hunt it and, and eat it. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of going back to that, but in a more modern form. Mm-hmm. I, I, I see that. You're a very successful person. You've opened a multitude of bars. You wrote a cocktail book, which uh, is quite an achievement itself. Uh Tell us, how did you start to get interested into bartending and when is it that it started for you? I, I got interested in bartending because I like going out. As a young man, I didn't really ever drink alcohol. Uh, I used to play cricket as a, as a profession when I left school. Oh, no so I was kind of a sportsman. Um, and it, it was only in, I progressed by being around a lot of the, the older guys in the team that they like to go out. And so I kind of got this newfound thirst as around as like a 20 21 year old of going out and partying 
So I kind of was always around bars. And then I stopped playing cricket, I got injured. And so it's kind of a natural progression from being a drunk sportsman to being a bartender. <laughs> so where did you start bartending? Like, do you have good memories of your first bartending job or not really? I still remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> it was a bar called Bar Humbug. Some of my friends worked there and they, they, was a, they had a venue on the first floor. And they said, can you, um, can you come and help us? Someone's called sick. I was downstairs just like having, having a drink. And I went upstairs. I was unbelievably bad at it. But I got this like this sense of excitement. And, and it, was over, it was like there and then I was like, maybe this is what I want to do. I didn't know what I wanted to do after playing cricket. And it was just, it was just so much fun. But above anything else, it was fun. And I really, it gave me like a, a new purpose. And so my competitive nature as a sportsman came out and I, I seeked out people who could help me improve. At what stage did you get uh, into cocktails or such? Or was it like right off the bat? Uh, what is it? That... I think when I, when did I start bartending? Quite some time ago now. But I think back then, the, like the, the cool venues in the North were like venues like the living room. I don't know if you, you know mm-hmm. of them. They had a really good training training. Um, program that they put with their staff and one of the guys who did my training session he came he actually came over and like spent some time was a guy called chris hoy he's now brand ambassador in the uk and chris spent some time as he taught us like a white lady and all these sort of classic cocktails um we never made any of them because everyone wanted to drink like jack daniels and coke and rum and cokes and stuff and beers but it still gave me an understanding of what else there was out there behind except for like a spirit mixer so I, I think the first book that I bought was The Difference Guide. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's um, a beautiful book. So, it, and it was literally like pictures and pictures and pictures and recipes and, and started to like think about drinks. And I think I was at Bar Humbug for just over a year. And then I went to work at a bar called Skin. Mm-hmm. And that was a cocktail bar. It was, a, it was a real like style bar, like mid, mid sort of, when was it? Like early 2000s, real style bar, like glass, leather. Oh yeah, it's, if it opened now, it, you'd be like, "Wow, look at look at that, that's bad." And what but was that? It was in Nottingham. Okay. But back then, it was like really cool. Okay. Um, and yeah, we had a, like a massive cocktail list, and where the blenders would go in, and it, <laughs> and, it, and again, it was like it was. Dumb bitch. It was like yeah, it was, like, it, was, it, was, it was amazing, <laughs> but it was really busy. It was like cocktails, post mix, spirit mixes, and it was like pumping out drinks for three hours a night then it like then it quiet down you go out and drink after work yeah and it was kind of there really but it was still a casual nature of bartending it, it wasn't like researching your days off days off or like going out with your friends it was it was still like work and home life it wasn't mm-hmm. all part of one um yeah it was and it wasn't it probably wasn't until I moved to London really that the serious cocktail things started to take off when did you move to London I moved to London just gone 12 years ago Oh, okay. Yeah, it's uh, 12 years in last October. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're about to move to Sydney. So. Yeah. What is it that made you move to London? Why did you decide that was the next step for you? For me, I felt I was getting, to, without being boring, I felt, I felt like I was getting stuck in a rut as a, as, a, as a person. I wasn't learning anything else. I was, I was working at kind of the coolest venue, running the venue. But that was, it was stagnant. I wasn't, it was just work. Mm-hmm. Go home, do it again. I wanted to learn. I wanted, I wanted to learn new things. I, I'd always been excited about London. It was it was always an amazing city whenever I visited. And yeah, I, I decided that now was the time to take the chance. 
And uh, what were the main challenges that you had when you moved over to London? If there were any. Or... Loneliness. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. Um, I found London incredibly lonely. It took me uh, probably for a year. Mm-hmm. Everyone's so busy all the time. And even though you have like small pockets of friends, to actually see them is difficult because they've got a life, they've got other friends away from you. And I probably had four friends when I moved to London. And some of them weren't always around. So I found it really, really lonely. People didn't talk to each other. Yeah, it was a, it was a really hard year, year in my life to, to adjust to London life. But once it clicks, it's an amazing place. It's true, right? When you, as soon as you move into such a big city like London, you can feel detached uh, from yeah. the rest of the people, which is very weird because you are surrounded by, swarmed by people. There's like yeah. tons of people. There's people everywhere, you. But, but you don't know anyone. You don't know where you're going. It's... It's so weird to, to, to be in a place that you, it's so familiar, but so unfamiliar at the same time. Does this help you develop a stronger bond with your team or? Uh... It, it makes me have an appreciation for when people come and move to London and how much help they need to adjust mm. to, the, to, the, to the city. We generally recruit a lot of people from outside of London to the bar. And so we're, we're really proactive of making people feel like really connected when they arrive so that, and giving them almost a family, especially if they come from overseas. Because the minute you get that, the minute you, you kind of understand your way around, it becomes one of the best places in the world. I agree. I think it's such a dynamic uh, place, right? There's so much happening. and I think, I think it's an easier place to move to now mm. because there's a lot more there's a lot, there's social media for one which brings everyone closer together. Mm-hmm. There's also a lot more bars, there's a lot more restaurants. So it's easy, you've, you've seen people on social media, so it's easier to connect with people. Mm-hmm. Whereas back then, Twitter was just starting. It was like, no one really knew how to use Twitter. I'm that old. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, it's, it's a different place. I think it's probably a bit easier, easier now. Like my story makes it seem really challenging, but actually probably now it's much easier. Mm-hmm. So, in how many bars have you worked as an uh, employee and at what stage uh, did you start thinking I want to become an employer? I've, I think I've worked at four bars as an employee. Uh-huh. And, um, and which one was the last? Zuma. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Did you like it or? Yeah, I, lo- I, I, I loved it, but it was hectic uh, i'm sure which, yeah. which is the one in knightsbridge yeah it? okay yeah that's crazy busy isn't yeah it? how many uh, covers do you do in a day two sittings for lunch sometimes one or two sittings for lunch which is 140 per sitting three at night jesus that's restaurant and then you've got walk-ins and people stood around the outside eating and drinking as well mental i thought i was fast and then i, <laughs> and then I went i went then. and then and then i w- went to work at zuma and then you're you're on dispense on your own because the three other bartenders of a four deep of okay. people and there's people eating everywhere so you're essentially making drinks for 140 people as well as people outside i i was waking up i was waking up in the night airing the docket machine <laughs> yeah. oh my god so bad but but you learn from it the manager wanted to find me within a week oh there she you said go. i was too slow Seriously? yeah she's and the, the other bartenders understood the situation, so they were taking some dockets and making help, helping me out. Oh, and, that's fantastic. Uh, and, and then once you know the specs, it becomes much easier and you understand that you don't have to use a jigger all the time because you, you, you couldn't survive there using jiggers. Uh-huh. No one used jiggers at the time and I was 
using my jigger. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So yeah, it was, uh, there was a there was a there was a change, but it also made me understand that when you come to work, it's game time. Uh-huh. There's you can't go out, you can't have a hangover. If you have a hangover, you don't survive during shift. You have to walk. You walk in two hours. You are pushing hard. So if you don't push in, in your prep for two hours, you're not ready for service. And that's lunch and dinner. So it, it made me understand like what professional environment was all about. So apart from that, is there anything, any other place that you worked uh, at that shaped you in a specific way? Not not in terms of a venue, but the people maybe. Mm-hmm. I think I worked, I went to work at a nightclub okay. called Molten House on South Molten Street. Um, and there we, it was like, a member, private members' places, nightclub in the basement, ground floor was a kitchen, and then first floor cocktail bar, and then private dining and stuff like that. And it was here that I met a guy called Andreas Sanos. Mm-hmm. And Andreas, he kind of introduced me into his style of drinks, but also he took me to Zuma. So without meeting him at this venue, and to him taking me to Zuma wouldn't have made me think about drinks the way I do, about going to work and when you're at work, you push on. You don't. There's no slacking. There's, like sometimes there's a time to, to slack around, but time is money, and it's about mm-hmm. going into work and then pushing. So when you actually you step away from work, you don't have to. Your private life becomes a bit easier because you don't have to work so much. What is it that made you think? Okay, now I'm ready to open my own place. My my flatmate at the time, we were thinking, how are we going to make money for someone else? From rather than making it for someone else, how we're going to make money for ourselves? So we were like, maybe we should start doing some events and and stuff like this. And at the time, I spoke to my old business partner, um, Tom, and it's like Tom worked for Diageo at the time. And I said, look, me and Brian are thinking about doing events. Do you think it's a good idea? You're in the you're like connected with the industry, and he said, like me and Tristan are thinking about doing it as well. Why don't we have a conversation? So we we had a conversation, like, and we decided maybe we should do something as a four they, they still were working at Diageo so me and Brian would have to front up and be the be the front of it um, we did one event in like six months I was saying, yeah. and then we had we, an, an opportunity an opportunity came in for us to to go and do some consultancy in Azerbaijan okay. um, for a chef connection um, and we sent them a quote over saying we can come for two weeks two of us can come and we thought we can like I was still at Zuma at the time. We all had jobs and we thought we could take two weeks holiday, go and do this job and it'll maybe be lucrative for us. And we'd sent them a quote, which is we thought was like over overinflated. And they said, we'll pay you double, but we need to come for a month. So we had some big decisions to make and actually um, me and Tom quit our jobs. I quit Zuma, Tom, Tom quit Diageo. And we, we went for a month and the other boys came and supported us for weeks and they took holidays and... That kind of paid for Pearl back in 2010. And how was Azerbaijan? Amazing. Yeah? Really, really amazing. It, I kind of got institutionalized after a month. <laughs> <laughs> there's very, it's a very specific way of living, but there's also, it's very diverse, rich and poor. Okay. No, no, no middle ground. Mm-hmm. You're either rich, super rich or you're low earner and you work in the service industry and you don't get paid very much. Okay. Um, and that was kind of the hard thing to, to figure out and to get your head around a little bit because mm-hmm. we were working for billionaires who owned like all the caviar in the country and all these and cigarettes and they were related to the president and, and there was this 
world of billionaires and then there's this world away from it where people are just eating bread on the street in hindsight do you regret sending the call that you send them probably but then we we arrived in this 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 incredible place this it's a beautiful city like a, a really really beautiful city um and we worked in this like 20,000 square foot restaurant for a month and and we taught the sense of achievement from teaching bartenders who we couldn't speak the same language mm -hmm. who didn't even know what an Orthorn strainer was okay to so it must have been very very challenging to after to leaving and walking away watching them do blue blazers at the table oh that's fantastic so the the sense of achievement that we got the the guys who we were training like they seize the opportunity to learn from us and i think they're all accomplished bartenders and they're, they're i think some of them might even own venues now um so and then we had the opportunity to go back two years later and do do another venue with the same guys oh fantastic yeah it's, it's, and and you can see like they have a grand prix there now the eurovision yeah. song cost there's there's a lot of money being spent on the to, to bring tourism to the to the country and it's it's five hours away and you don't ever really think about going but it, it's it's a stunning place maybe like a smaller version of dubai oh, okay maybe not as good as beaches but that's that kind of vibe and the venue you opened i'm assuming it was in baku right yeah both in baku yeah <laughs> what happened after that like after baku so we we okay we came back from baku we we found a site like really quickly and we decided that maybe this is we had this pot of money that we just earned and we we're going to invest it and actually focus more on consultancy and then events we saw that there was probably a place in the market to do consultancy so we thought what better place to have an office than to have a bar mm -hmm. you know we can have a showcase we can make some money in the evening hopefully and um so we spoke to the bank and said well look we've got this this amount of money can you support us we want to open a venue we've, we've found the site and we were lucky to get a government grant through the, through the bank and yeah we literally it was a scary time not scary it's kind of really exciting but we got the keys we had our budget set out we had a ten thousand pound buffer first day that 10 10 grand's gone the the, 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 the the electrician said you need need to be rewired there's like an electrical issue everything needs to be brand new so that 10 grand buffer was gone day one day one good start and we were all we were building it ourselves we, we had an electrician to do the electrical work my dad did the plumbing but other than that, we were we had a stainless steel company and we had someone to do a bar top. The rest of it, we built ourselves. And uh, that bar was? Pearl. Pearl, fantastic. It's just still there in Marlebin now. So you work with uh, Marian, I guess? Yep. How is it to work with Marian? Like, I guess it changed a lot, did it? Because they were talking about like almost 10 years ago now. It made me really self-conscious because okay. he's really fucking good. <laughs> <laughs> he works mega hard, doesn't Yeah, it? like... Standing next to Marion, I was afraid to shake a cocktail because because he looks so good. He's like a, the most amazing person to to watch. Uh -huh. um, he's so hundred percent behind his craft. So to stand next to him, I just shake like a normal shake, like a bartender, <laughs> and pour like a jigger like this. So, you obviously can't see it, but Marion's beautiful to watch. And so for me, I sometimes found myself watching him and like not not making drinks. <laughs> Just passing him dockets. <laughs> Staying at Marian. <Yeah. laughs> so, what were the main challenges? You mentioned a little bit about the financial issues that you had, but you know, moving from behind the bar to owning a business, I'm sure you had some 
unforeseen challenges? What were the main challenges? Uh, to, at the time, it was pretty plain, plain sailing. Mm-hmm. I think it was easier to open bars then. Mm-hmm. Um, there was hardly any bars in London back then. There was probably 10 great bars. Now there's 10 great bars in every single borough. It's, it's, it's such a different city. So for us, we, we, opened, we opened Pearl. We were really quiet for like three weeks and then Time Out came out. And back then, all you needed was a five-star review from Time Out and it was like, boom, Ooh. we were busy. Um, so, so it's a little different now. So I think there's, there's more challenges now than there is there was back then. Mm-hmm. Now you're competing. You can, the marketplace is flooded. You're competing with the best bars in the world. And by that, I don't mean someone who's been ranked the best bar in the world because there's some bars in London that are the best bars in the world and they're, they're not even recognised. So you're literally competing against everyone, but everyone's also very supportive in, in the same same breath. So there's only a certain amount of people and it's all about getting people's attention, especially that's, I think that's more the challenge. There's enough apps and there's enough people and accountants and all this sort of things that can that can provide you with the relevant support network to run a business. Probably the accountants, you put, you put your best friend. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the timeout. You mentioned scoring systems and things like that. Nowadays, obviously the industry has evolved and uh, social media took a, uh, like a center stage on what yeah. we do. And as well as um, awards, like there's a financial, like getting awards makes financially sense. This is something that you're aware of as a business o- owner? Like it's something that is in the back of your mind or... It's a bit of a controversial question, so don't. Feel no, no, so I'm, I'm happy to share. I think awards are always nice. One financially, but two for morale for the team, mm-hmm. um, and to keep them, probably to to get them to really buy into a, a different concept. If you're winning awards, it's easier for people to to get behind a concept. If you're not making any money, you're quiet, and you're not winning awards. Like, why is anyone going to stay working in a concept that's that you're flogging a dead horse for. But I think we have a very specific structure of how much money we can spend to produce a drink. We have to make it affordable for people. I think our drinks are £9.50, which is pretty pretty cheap mm. in London. So yes, there's one eye on the awards, but sometimes in a small venue, pushing too hard for awards doesn't necessarily mean financial reward because you have to... You have to spend money on marketing. You have to spend money on sending bartenders traveling around the world. There's obviously it doesn't it doesn't. It's very hard to to be in the top fifty in the world without spending money to to travel and put your bar's name on the, on the on people's on lips. People need to talk about you. People need to be able to see what you're doing. People need to taste your your drinks, and they can't taste them if they've. If they've only got to come to London, you've got to sometimes go to them too. So I think sometimes, yes, there's a financial reward for people coming into your bar when you get on lists, but to get to that point, you've probably got to spend money to get there. Yeah. So uh, what happened after Pearl? Per- after Pearl, we opened the Whistling Shop, mm-hmm. which is literally just, just, it's got a new reincarnation now. JJ's bought it and turned it into an LCC, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, we opened Whistling Shop and Whistling Shop was really successful as well again overnight kind of busy a little bit and then timeout came out boom <laughs> it's crazy um yeah and then 
we were lucky enough to get on some lists and lucky enough to be nominated for some awards with Tails and yeah, Whistling Shop went crazy. So you work with Ryan. Ryan Ryan left Colbert Row. Okay. Um, and then while we were in the interim of waiting for um, waiting for Whistling Shop to open, Ryan did some shifts at Pearl as well. Okay. And well, then it was more of a casual thing, wasn't it? And then after Whistling Shop opened, we. We obviously saw the benefit in Ryan creating drinks um, <laughs> because he's amazing. Uh, so we, he, he did he did work across both both venues and and lists and freed us up to try and push the business. You're probably one of the very few people who had the chance to work with Marian and uh, Ryan, which I think they have uh, they probably are the opposite when it comes to bartending yeah. style. How would you think the two compare? I think they've probably both got one main defining thing mentally is that they're incredibly driven people mm-hmm. and they, they they're both super creative they both share creativity they both share drive and passion and, and you can be t- two different ends of the scale but if you've got these qualities you're you're ultimately very similar characters too so the first time uh, i had the chance to come to whistling shop one of the things that i've noticed was you guys were looking into this thought, okay, how do we produce our own spirits? Yeah. And when did you get these ideas? Or like, when did you think, okay, now I need to start working more towards producing alcoholic ingredients from scratch? I think it, it was, the concept was all about Victorian drinking, like Victorian, almost speakeasy style whistling shops. And it was how we could recreate these, these ingredients and bring them into the modern the modern world, and without making things from scratch, it's pretty diff- pretty difficult because these ingredients aren't, aren't available. So, um, so we decided we were going to build a, a little lab that you could. The, the venue the venue lent itself. We didn't actually where the lab was through the little glass mm-hmm. that was actually already there. Um, so we we didn't actually build that. Um, That's fantastic. Get so so that, that room, so that, that was kind of like let's build a lab. Let's be able to see it. You will be able to give like Victorian drinking, but you're going to be able to see how the modern workings of, of Victorian drinking then is. And it kind of went from there, really. It's, I still think it's something that it's at the core of what you do, right? They're making your own ingredients yeah. from scratch, from zero. Do you think uh, that in current days, rotovaps and things like this are, are overused or you do you welcome the fact that more bars are trying to go towards that way? T- to be honest, back in the whistling shop days, my uh, me being in the lab doing creativity was probably maybe one percent of my job um i was generally doing all the paperwork and the books and the numbers and working with the accountant and that was (laughs) and 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 doing all kind of the operational side of the venues it was wasn't until i went out and did my own thing that obviously that was a passion because I, i wanted to do it but actually getting it in and being creative but again was when i started working on my own again i think Rote of apps shouldn't be seen as something that's weird and interesting and different. If someone wants to use one, I think they should be championed for it. Or if they don't want to, if a bar doesn't want to use it, they should also be championed for it. Mm-hmm. Is it necessary to have a rote of app? No, it's not. It's really not. You can you can make drinks. People make drinks day in day out. Some of the best bars in the world with no lab equipment whatsoever. But if someone wants to, why not? Right. Why not? Um, I think. Every single spirit, well, most spirits that a bar buys for their bar has been fermented and it's been distilled. Like, why is it different if someone wants to redistill it in their bar again to make a new flavour? It's not a new process. 
it's something that's already happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just opening up the scale of what's achievable. So yeah, I'm I'm all for it. If every bar in the world had one, it'd be amazing. <laughs> if they don't, who cares? It'd be amazing for all of our companies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they'd, be, they'd be very happy. <laughs> Those things are not cheap. So what happened after Whistling Shop? Whistling Shop, we opened a a, a burger restaurant and and a bar in Hampstead that didn't didn't do too well. It, it didn't, but it was a great lesson for all of us to actually understand. Uh, to be businessmen mm-hmm. rather than just bartenders owning bars we understood the need to to let something go if it wasn't that wasn't right it wasn't successful and to grow as businessmen and to and that, that was a, a, a good lesson for all of us I think and oh, sorry what is it that didn't work out I think the location more than anything we we opened a burger restaurant in, in a suburb where it was rich moms wanted to eat salads oh, okay. <laughs> so I think the, the location probably didn't didn't work so, so good for us but it was a good lesson and then from there I, I kind of went out and did my own thing after that um, set up Talented Mr Fox as a company um, and did a pop up and that pop up did really well for the, the venue that we and that I was in and we decided to keep it there for a short while until the hotel was sold and yeah that was, that was kind of my journey I started on my own Tell us more, which one was your first uh, 100% solo adventure? Talents Mr. Fox. Yeah, like, what was the first venue you opened with them? Talents Mr. Fox was a pop-up in within one Leicester Street hotel. A friend of mine had the the restaurant, which is a, a Michelin-style restaurant on the ground floor, and they had a bar that no one really knew that it was a bar upstairs. And he's like, do you want to come and do, like, a month? Just to, you need something to do, but you want to do something for yourself, um, it'd be a good opportunity for you to, to come and do something, but also be a good opportunity for us to get some attention on the bar. So I, I said yeah, and then after one month, we took like ten times more than they'd ever taken in a month before. It's hugely successful. So they asked me to stay. So it's kind of my own venue, but it was a, very much a pop up still um, until that was in October. We did that, and then at Christmas I. It was the same company who owned Town Hall Hotel where Viajante was at the time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of had a, an ear that Nuno wanted to close Viajante. So I emailed the owner in Singapore and said, I want to take the space where the bar is. And he said, you've got to speak to the general manager. But yeah, no, why not? You've, you've done really well in One Leicester Street. And then she said, yeah, cool. One more email back. And he said... You can change anything you want, but you've got to keep the bar where it is. Okay. Um, he's like, I love that bar. And he, he said, and the other prerequisite is, I've already ordered your tables and chairs. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. From Malaysia, and they're, they're amazing. He sent me pictures, and I was like, yeah, they're amazing. Um, and that was it. What happened after that? So that, Peg and Patriot opened in March. So I had a contract with a the hotel. They were going to fund the refit. Um, I was going to work with the designers, and then I would basically have a three-year contract to operate in within that space um, and we were there for about nearly four years yep. so what was the idea behind it and how did you go about making it happen the idea behind Peg and Patriot was about maybe making accessible drinks sometimes really weird drinks but having fun with drinks creation mm-hmm. uh, actually we were going to try and make as much of it as ourselves we are going to try and keep everything as much in, in-house. We weren't going to have a massive back bar. We are going to be really concise and considered. But we were just going to make whatever we wanted to whenever we wanted to. 
because we could and it helped to we were inside a hotel so you've always got a traffic from guests staying in the hotel it's a 98 98 bedroom hotel so there's always a flow which if I was in a standalone venue probably would have been a bit more cautious <laughs> but it was in a hotel we, we had the opportunity to do some cool stuff I think Peg and Patriot was great we didn't make any lists we didn't win we won a timeout award for most creative bar but I think it was a really really good bar to hang out and have fun in so you mentioned the the fact that uh, that was a hotel bar and it helped you somehow with the footfall. Do you think uh, that nowadays opening a standalone venue in uh, London is nearly impossible? Or? No, I, it's not nearly impossible because people are still doing it. Mm-hmm. It's really challenging because it's. I think once you once you're a multiple oper- operator, it's quite easy because you have trading history, you have a background. You can go to a landlord and say. This is my background. This is my pack, and and you can see that you're probably going to pay his rent. And ultimately, all the landlord cares about is if you're going to pay rent or not. If you're going to pay it on time, and making him believe that you're going to pay his rent. Whereas if you're it's your first venue, if you've worked somewhere else and won awards, it's part of your CV. But to go to a landlord and say I've got no trading history, take a punt on me. I'm going to pay your rent, is a challenge and. There's so many people that are trying to look at every single site. For a landlord, he's always going to pick his safe bet. He's always going to pick a multiple operator who's going to pay his rent. So it, it can be hard. That's why generally you see some bars now opening in suburbs slightly out, out of the city centre because it gives bartenders the opportunity to take a site that might have been closed for a while and the landlord's more likely to take a punt on you. You are now a uh, multiple business owner and uh, you have... Uh open venues and being in the business for a while. What recommendations would you give to someone who wants to open this bar now? Be really considered about marketplace, as in what's happening in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Like, are, are people making any money in the area where you're looking to open? Have a really good graphic designer to bring to life a, a landlord pack and have an amazing pack that you can go, this is me. And and be, make it really visual because ultimately, the first time that anyone's going to see anything about you is in an email. See, making an impact in an email is really challenging, challenging, but it's also really important to have the visuals right. Because if you find a venue you like, you're fortunate enough to have raised some funds and you have the money in place, the biggest obstacle is is someone saying yes to you Mm -hmm. taking the venue. So I think that is really important. And also being passionate about your concept because when you talk to, when you present your idea, you've got to be pretty good at sales too. You've got to sell in your idea. And also I think opening bars is not easy, but it's also like incredibly rewarding. And so I think if you, if, if you want to do it, it's, there's no time like the present because it, it's going to take you a little while to, to do it. So some, some, some bartenders are at it a bartender who worked for me in Pagan Patriot, Constanza. Constanza was like, you know, in the future, I think I might go back to Portugal and I might look to open a bar. I've, I've been fortunate. I've got a little bit of money. And I was like, why not do it now? And she said, I'm not ready. I was like, you're never going to be ready. <laughs> no one's ever ready to open their first bar. But you, you are ready. You should do it. You, 
ultimately you're going to learn you're going to be able to talk to people you're going to be able to gain experience from people you're going to ask ask advice from people there's no time like the present if you if it's something you want to do and there's a venue you've got some money okay, I say go for it is there anything you regret on what you did no. like in terms of nothing there's, there's things I wish I'd done differently uh, but do I regret them probably not um, I think we're humans and we should learn from from everything and those mistakes or should I say or things I've done that I wish I'd learned from they're they've probably made me a little bit more cautious than I used to be I was probably a bit more gung-ho when I was a bit younger but it's their lessons to learn from to to improve and to so you don't make I think if you make the same mistake twice then you then there would be a regret yeah. but if you if you learn from it and take it as a, as a learning thing I think they're valuable learning is all is like really valuable for us as bartenders but also as humans tell us what happened after uh, Pagan Patriot Pagan Patriot I was I really wanted to do a standalone um, Scout had been manifesting through some menus that we'd done at Pagan Patriot there was I, I could see like there was a clear direction that I wanted to take what I was doing and at the time we were thinking about doing the Scout concept as a menu and then it through a consultancy because through a consultancy job I, I met a guy who owned some restaurants and I was, I was talking to him saying I wanted to do something myself and he said look maybe we should do it together um, he, back at the time then because I'd worked as a pop-up in a hotel I essentially didn't have any trading history other than my consultancy that I was doing and he had six pubs I think and three restaurants so he, he had trading history so it was, it was nice to, to be able to take that into meetings And then we found the site on Great Eastern Street and we met the landlord and there were like a family run like landlord and he loved the concept and he offered us the space in the meeting and like we, we weren't ready financially. <laughs> um, so we had, to make, we had to find a way of making it work. Um, yeah, and then Scout opened. I think we, everything was so considered, precise and the first weekend we opened... I knew that Scout in Shoreditch was going to be a challenge. Why? Location. Mm -hmm. We're sandwiched between two really big late night venues with big queues at the, at the weekend. They were, uh, their queues would converge on us. They weren't necessarily the nicest people in the street. There's like two for one cocktails, like Magalove style, like go and have a free drink right outside our door. And so the clientele that we were hoping for from the Clove Club and all these places and probably weren't going to walk around to, to our venue and, and I knew that this was something that we we're going to have to work work towards and challenge and ultimately it, it was a, a challenge for us so when the opportunity came around through the landlord when it was selling the office space upstairs and the new owners wanting to to buy Scout there's for me there was an opportunity to take take the venue to a new location and actually secure our future talk to us a little bit about the scout the idea behind it and how did you come about the venues that you open probably are a reflection of uh, where you are in terms of uh, your career development yeah I guess, right? so i think that the latest creation of yours is scout so yeah. it must be the most evolved representation of who you are as a partner. yeah like scouts people talk about sustainability all the time but scouts not really it's not sustainability and zero waste for us is is not the most important part of what we do it's about like what's in your area, what's in your, what, where are your surroundings. So it was about let's go and 
forage things. Let's let's go and buy. Let's go and fi- find local producers, farms. And let's go and buy the freshest ingredients. The freshest ingredients are obviously going to taste better than mm. non-fresh ingredients. So, which means that theoretically, your drink should taste better, um, or your food should taste better. So it was, it was kind of this idea of living within your surrounds, um, and actually. Britain's an amazing place when you scrape away at it. We, I think we have the best berries in the world because we have this cold climate and then this warm bit of weather and these berries ripen. And I think when when berry season hits the UK, it's, it's a magical place to eat, like, incredible. But also there's, some, there's amazing produce in Scotland. There's so many farms. There's, it can be a great place to to eat fresh ingredients. The UK actually imports a lot of lot of stuff around Europe. We import produce and export produce, and there's like this crossover of produce. It's like, why? Why are we just not eating our? Why are we not eating our own stuff? Importing berries from Spain. Yeah, it's uh, Spain. It's, it's like tomatoes come from Spain. Isla White tomatoes. You know that famous Isla White tomato grown in Spain. It's crazy. And there's like berries coming from Netherlands, and we're like shipping our berries to somewhere else. It's like, what's going on? So, how much time uh, did you spend uh, with producers, if any? Um, quite a bit to learn the process. Like a lot of a lot of time talking online because um, it's not always easy to to get out. Um, but also, we we did an incredible amount of research about London itself because there's so much produce on the street, and I think it's mental that you don't until you until you open your eyes to it, you don't even see it. But there's Plums, pears, apples, every everyday fruit that you can pick from a street in most suburbs in London. It's there's like there's like so much mint, like literally over the road. There's figs and fig trees and fig leaves on your doorstep in this crazy cosmopolitan city with not very many parks, not much greenery, and there's like trees and stuff growing on the street. It's amazing. That's uh, quite incredible. How does your uh, venue stack uh, against places like Operation Dagger, for instance? Because you have a lot of similarities in terms of... Me and and Luke are are really close friends. Uh So I think a lot of ideas manifest between ourselves. And then there's a lot of times before we start putting drinks on the menu, we message each other. (laughs) (laughs) And we go, bastard, he's already done that one. We're going to start again. (laughs) So uh, there is, there's a lot of similarities, but also there's a lot of difference. We do make drinks similar, but the way we get to that end goal is very different. Mm-hmm. We have the same, we have very similar equipment, but we the presentation is looks better at garnishes than I am. Okay. Um, so so it's, it, the drinks do look a little different, but the the structure of the drink can be very similar. But how we get to that that point can sometimes be very different. So it's it's really nice to talk to him and, and we share a lot of ideas with each other. I think from uh, my side, having been on the other side of your bars, one of the things that always I always found very interesting about your drinks is this concept of being very clean. Yeah. But like also there's a certain element of symmetry. Yeah. Like you know having a round glass with a smaller round dot in the middle. And yeah. Like, is this something that you take into consideration when you make your drinks, or is it more about the pursuit of aroma and flavour? For me, the pursuit is the, the best drink possible. How, how you get to that point, it can vary. Mm-hmm. But also, I'm obsessed with sugar. 
in what sense? The balance between the weight in your mouth and something being too sweet. So I'm always I always err on this side of caution with sugar, and I think that's so. I think the drinks always do taste clean. I always try and take out all sediment, um, and also always try and use a really fine glass because I think things taste better from a fine glass rather than a, thin, a thick lips glass. Mm-hmm. And then symmetry is not something that I've ever thought about. Okay. <laughs> but now you say it, there, there is a, generally a lot of symmetry. You know, there are a lot of bars that have, uh, you mentioned Niger, right? Yeah. Like where drinks are very, very complex and there's a lot of elements, you know, and, and they're beautiful to look at and they have beautiful glassware. And I think they're very elaborate. While you go on the opposite side, like being extremely minimalistic, but having these small elements of symmetry that make you think that it's not that I forgot to garnish it or I don't care about garnishing, is that this is the way I see my drink happening. At least this is how I perceived it from my side. I think sometimes drinks don't need garnishes. Mm-hmm. Like some, like if I don't like garnishes that float, mm-hmm. they just sit in a drink floating around. But I also. I see this sometimes see the benefit of an elaborate garnish too. Like sometimes I see a drink and it's got this amazing garnish that like the guys at Oriel or Nightjar or oh. Marion's and I'm like, wow, that drink looks incredible. But then I see something that looks so simple and you drink it and it's, it has so much flavour and, and it hits you in the face with this like magic of what the fuck. <laughs> I think this is a special thing. So I generally like to do things clean, but yeah, I like I like the simplest. I like the magic between seeing something and drinking it, and seeing a reaction. That's a that's a very cool approach. When it comes to scalp, we mentioned that you're moving here to Australia. You, you told us told us why you thought Australia was a good good move. Uh, what are the challenges you can see here? Scout in in Sydney will be different in the way that we won't be completely table service. The mar- Sydney, people like to stand at the bar and order drinks. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind. <laughs> it blows my mind that people don't want to sit with their friends and talk to their friends and have someone bring them a drink. And they want to go and stand at the bar on their own, hot, and like try and get someone's attention. And then struggle carrying all the drinks back to the table. It, blows, it literally blows my mind. that someone, they, But they all want to do it. Not not everyone, but a lot of people want to go to the bar and stand at the bar and order drinks. So we, I don't want to try and change people by going. This is the way we do it because people have a way of life here, and, and I'm I'm not going to try and change people's way no, of life. Of I want to join in. Mm-hmm. So where the venue is going to be kind of where the bar is will be vertical drinking. There'll be some tables, there'll be seats at the bar, but there will be vertical drinking. Then we have an opportunity to stand at the bar and chat to the bartender and order drinks over the bar. And then there'll be a table service area. If you want to have your table and still go and order at the bar, that's fine, that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's going to, I would say it's going to be less structured in in terms of service style. Um, We'll still give everyone an amuse, we'll still do what we do with drinks and scout and the way we go about it, but you just might be standing up <laughs> instead. Does this uh, change the way you think, like you go about making your drinks or not? I've, met, I've changed a couple of the drinks from original concept after being here. Mm-hmm. Um, we generally use a lot of whiskey in London. We, we Not completely whiskey drinks, but we might add structure and backbone with five mil of whiskey or 10 mil of whiskey just to 
to change the back note of a drink, whereas Australia is very white spirit-led. Um, and maybe in the future we might look to introduce these, but it is summer at the minute, um, and we'll, we'll definitely be going down a much more white spirit-led menu to start off with. There are some whiskey drinks on the menu that we are putting a section on the menu that is very identifiable. It's going to have an espresso martini on the menu. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a vodka soda. There's going to be a whiskey soda. Granted, if you want to drink a vodka soda, it's going to have green ants in it. But it's we're putting three drinks that are very identifiable mm-hmm. to make the approach seem easier. You mentioned espresso martini. Is that uh, Australia probably is the coffee capital of the world right now. Do you yeah. have a certain emphasis on coffee in your venue? Or? Not, not in terms of coffee service. We're, we're in night venues, so, so coffees won't necessarily be a part of everyday service. It's something that I've been very conscious about, the fact that if we're going to put an espresso martini on the menu, it has to be fucking amazing. <laughs> Otherwise, we don't make it all. That makes sense. Because Martin Hudak's here. Yeah, exactly. And so. if you want the best espresso martini, you're going to go and see him. Yeah, yeah. So if we're going to put one on the menu, it might be a little different. It might be our style, but... It, it'll still be an espresso martini style drink and it, it need, you need to drink it and go, yeah, that's amazing. Otherwise, um, this, you can go and buy one from someone who makes a classic somewhere else that's really, really good. So yeah, it, we've probably made that drink the most to try and get it right. Okay. Um, out of all of the drinks we've, we've made, that's the one drink that we've like, we have to nail this drink so good. I wanted to talk a little bit about your book. What motivated you towards writing a book? My wife. Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> for for me, having a book was not always something that was part of the plan. I'm not I'm not very good at sitting in the same place for a very long time, <laughs> and I'm, and I'm not a big I'm not a great reader. I don't read books from front to back. I look for and research and cross reference. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't ever part of the plan. So when the opportunity came up, I was like bit unsure about doing it whether I wanted to do it whether I had the brain power to sit and write a book because it's a time-consuming thing to write a book and my wife is like no right do it it's important so yeah without an amazing ghostwriter that I'd imagined it probably it wouldn't have been possible um so yeah we wrote the we wrote the book actually the editing part and the the, the process part is the challenging part because I had a ghostwriter writing it was the easy part, mm-hmm. making sure every single recipe is written out exactly the same way all the time is something that takes a lot of time and patience. <laughs> so you talk a lot about uh, the relationship in between uh, chefs and bars. Like, how did you go about this thing in your day-to-day business? Like, how close do you work with your chefs? And... We don't employ any chefs. Oh. So, so the relationship between bartender and chef is massive. It's quite far apart because we don't employ anyone. But because we do a lot of consultancy, we've been really fortunate to work in a lot of Michelin star restaurants and and to gain access into this world. And if you if you stand in the kitchen and watch chefs prep and watch the way they go about life, bartenders and chefs are very similar. We yes, if you're a bartender, and you you don't do any prep and you you like juice some limes and stuff like that, and you work in a venue like this then your relationship between a chef is probably quite far apart. But if you work in a prep-heavy bar venue, mm-hmm. we might work differently in terms of the way we set our stations out, And but we very we have the same principles. Um, so I think bartenders and chefs are becoming closer and closer. The need to serve food in bars is meaning we're getting having to get closer and closer. The need 
for restaurants to serve better cocktails is meaning we're getting closer and closer. So I think it's it's a different approach. Um, I I like to lead with with flavor first. So chefs extract flavor differently to us. So there's so many things we can learn from chefs. Likewise, the way that we extract flavor into liquid is totally different to the way the chefs extract flavor into a solid. So I think there's so much we can learn the way we extract flavor that we can. There's things to learn from each of us, and actually, you can take it into all kinds of things. So let's talk a little bit about about Matt when he's not working. You mentioned cricket. Yeah. I was speaking with a, a good friend of mine, Derek, I'm sure you know him. And he said that every day he needs to do something for at least one hour. That is completely unrelated to what he's doing, like yeah. as a profession, in order for him to be more productive of what he does. Yeah. What's that one thing that you do? Is it like skill sports or I don't think I don't think I have have one. Uh-huh. Um I work a lot. I probably my phone I answer my phone probably too much, <laughs> like all the time. But I like to I like to get out into nature. Um, it's the one thing that I do like. Like being here, like being in the ocean is 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 magical. Like being at the beach is is a magical thing. Even just going for a walk and seeing the harbour and in the boats, or going out into the bush and, and and seeing like animals is something that's necessary for me as a person being outside. And how about traveling? Is it a huge part of uh, who you are? Or Yeah, I would say so. Um, traveling when you have a business and getting around is more challenging. But the, the need to travel in this industry is, is necessary mm. in the, as, as a modern-day business owner and bartender. So yeah, travel is definitely important. And I think being in Australia, opening up Asia is, is massive. Well, Asia's still quite far away. <laughs> Except everything's far away from here. Yeah, exactly. But it's but it's still eight hours. But away. it's still but it's still four hours less than, than flying from the UK. Let's talk a little bit about our industry and where we are at the moment. I'm sure you are aware of uh, poor as a project yep. and some of the challenges that they tackle. How do you think that we're moving towards things like uh, diversity in the workplace and things like that? Do you think it's the industry moving towards a positive direction, or do you still? I think it's a problem or you've never seen it as an issue. I think change is definitely always a positive, but I think it's something that is definitely needs more work. Mm. The balance between male-female mm. is still heavily, heavily weighted towards men. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I understand that we work late. Um, men and women getting home from work is, is different for a woman to get home from work at night, late at night, two in the morning. Mm-hmm. The, the challenges, whereas a man can just jump on a bus or he can get in a taxi and be fine. So there's there's definitely it's definitely not going to change overnight. But I think the more we in, we encourage change, is better. You see a lot more female chefs, much more prominent female chefs. There's much more female bartenders, but we still need more. Mm, I agree. And uh, looking at one of the core uh, elements of what you talked about is the impact on the environment of our uh, venues. And you mentioned that the Scout uh, takes this into consideration. More of as a byproduct of what your concept is, like yep. what is it that's around us, rather than the ultimate goal, as you mentioned. Um, do you think that other bars are uh, following towards this direction, or do you think it's still something that's a niche? I think it's still quite niche. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's obviously other people, that not not me in the industry, are pushing the envelope, pushing the sustainability angle way more than I am. Um, so I think it doesn't. It just needs to be a part of life. It's actually being considered in your approach to your trash, to your, to everything, your water waste, your plastics. 
plastics is a big issue like a massive massive issue like how, how we tackle plastic waste as an industry is is big what far greater than a straw yeah i think food packaging is a huge issue yeah. for us like yeah. the way that food is shipped and yeah but also like the amount of glass that we, we throw away yeah like it's a single use stuff not that it's killing us as an yeah. industry i think so we like we throw bottles away all the time but then we buy in these beautiful clear bottles and sometimes we use ugly bottles all the time we we don't we try not to buy excessive bottles mm-hmm. because it's wasteful and yeah it doesn't look as nice for the, for the guest but it's ultimately better you but yeah we 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 get for a, a lot a lot of um, bottles and I, I think i think the the big companies need to to realize that why can't we buy a case of vodka as one single unit mm-hmm. rather than six bottles there's got to be solutions to how we buy spirits in bulk. It's a huge challenge. I remember when I, we were working at the American Bar with Martin, we approached a huge brand because we were selling loads of it, basically. And yep. we said, is there any way we can buy it? Stop getting bottles. Because for us, the main challenge there was, yes, there's the environmental impact, but it was just the logistics of it. It's yep. like so much glass that gets yep. in and out my bar instantly every day for no specific reason. And, you know, for branding reasons, that's not yep. possible. So. Yeah, looking forward to see some change in that specific perspective. So, talking to you as a person, when you go out, what kind of bar is it that makes you happy? Most of them. Okay, that's good. I think bars are there to, to have fun in. Mm-hmm. And so I think we take our, we, we take the industry a bit too seriously mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, I think if you're going out, any venue is going to be fun. And I think maybe we, we, we pick the bones in things a bit too much. And rather than sitting and having a good time with your friends and losing sight of the fact that you're out with your partner, your wife, your friends, and just actually being in the moment with, with your friends at the time rather than deciding if you like something or not. Do you, do you like a venue to go somewhere and enjoy it mm-hmm. rather than looking to criticise or maybe or talking about the positives? Like, yeah, just go and have fun. Like, most places make tasty drinks. And if you don't have a tasty drink, they'll probably make you something that's tasty. Yeah. So I think it's. Just, I think going out is about having fun and being like being with your friends and hanging out. Um, so I, I like I like going to most places. I like going to cocktail bars. I like going to a pub and having a beer. Mm-hmm. One of the key elements of bars, I think, it's music. Yeah. Is this something that uh, you enjoy looking into, or is it more like a I have to do it kind of thing? No, it's for me. I, I like listening to hip hop. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a merit to a lot of music. Music's very important. Um, finding the balance between what you like and what is the right for your venue is obviously always a challenge. Um, I'm lucky enough that I, I know a few people who, who they specialise in music, like DJs and stuff. So our playlist for Scout is curated by a hip hop DJ. Oh, um, so yeah, it's, it's it's definitely finding the right balance is also keeping it fresh as well like, like if you've got guests that come all the time they don't want to hear the same music all the time so it's having enough so it's different as well mm-hmm. cool last question of the day but this way ask this question to everybody you're about to be executed last drink whiskey neat <laughs> <laughs> and a, and a really fucking big <laughs> cool thank you so much for your time thanks mate thank you, you.